Hi, I'm Luke Campbell and I work for a small wine company and he's Luke Morris and... I, I have a show at the Sydney Fringe. Look out. Oh. And together we are Luke's Talk Wine, talking all things wine and booze and popular culture. Think when to drink, what to drink, why we drink it and the culture that surrounds drinking. Hello, Luke. G'day, Campbell. What's going on? And, well, good afternoon to the listening audience. Yeah, mate, yeah, not much going on. You know, oh. just, just batting on. But um, we have got a show to get through. So uh, here we are just um, getting through the show. Episode season no four. No pleasantries. Let's five. get through the show. Come on, let's just do it. You always complain that I'm up and about and I'm too excited. Well, today I'm just getting through the motions. Oh, right. <laughs> I can bring some energy. I've, I've, I just got uh, on Friday, I've sort of been bullied into this, but I'm, I'm happy to do it because it's fun to um, uh, sort of get back on the stage. I'm, I've got a show, Sydney Fringe. Hello, dear Sydney listeners. Um, come see me live on stage. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing the wine science show in person. As a, as a in real... in Sin City, look out! I don't think I don't think uh, the city of Sin is ready for your return, Luke Morris. But uh, no doubt we'll hear about that in the show. We've got some topics to get through. Do you want to know what they are? Oh, I hope one of them has to do with your passionate views on judging wine shows. But hit 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 them hit them. Let's go. Let's see. So we've got um, wine, and it's. Wine and its contribution to history. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions, oh. but wine has played a part in history, whether it's Napoleon or whether it's oh. Brad Pitt or whether it's, oh. you know, James Busby. I, I think there's a fair few myths and misconceptions, and we can bust a few of those today here okay. on the show, Luke's Talk Wine, Episode 5, Season 4. So we'll get through that. Yeah. I've got a listener question f from a town I know nothing about in South Australia. Rebecca is from R R Renmark. Um, we've obviously yeah. got one listener in Renmark, but if you know where Renmark is, uh, get involved. Send us an email at lukestalkwine.gmail.com um, and tell us a little bit about Renmark because I had no idea. But Is, Rebecca writes, or some, is that Isn't that one yeah. country? Well, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, Rebecca writes, and we'll get to this later in the show, how do I taste a bottle of wine for the table? Which is, uh, that's a very good question, Rebecca. Will Luke Morris will give his take on that. Oh. And then I'll say something completely different, uh, but stick with us. Um, and then I want to so. have, have a little bit of a chat about something we're missing, and it's pissing me off. All right language warning but no i reckon i reckon the world could do with a white wine emoji but we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on is there a red wine emoji there is a red wine emoji the only wine emoji apart from champagne is a red wine emoji why is there no white wine emoji uh, we'll, we'll answer that question later on but um first up mate um sydney fringe what, what's been happening sydney fringe that's big news yeah, no. It's, Wine it's, science show. Yeah, Merrick Merrickville at the factory. I'll um, I'll, I'll put it on the socials when tickets come up. In uh, well, I don't know. A few, it's actually going to be a few weeks when tickets come available. But yeah, um, I can't remember the dates to be honest with you. I, I've mm -hmm. got an email somewhere. It will get announced. But 
Yeah, it's, uh, I got I sort of got encouraged by a friend in Sydney to come to Sydney, and basically I'm I was going to go up there and watch some shows at Sydney Fringe, and they were like, "Why don't you um, why don't you do a show?" And I was like, "Nah, it's a lot of work to get on stage and make a show really good." And they were like, "Yeah, but you can." I was like, "Ah." Oh. And then, then, sort of as it progressed, and those sort of offers, the, the dates and the things came through, and I just sort of re-looked at the show, and I was, I hadn't looked at the show for like almost two years, to be honest with you, and I, yeah. I, I, I sort of, there was parts where I laughed, and it's, it's always nice when you when you do like a comedy sort of thing, and you you go back to material that you haven't looked at for a while, and you laugh yourself. It's like ah. Oh, that was good, wasn't it? That that was a <laughs> like it, it sounds sort of I don't know, arrogant or conceited or something to laugh at your own things, but yeah, I just sort of looked back at it and went, Oh, that was a good line, or yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing, and that was a good that's a, that's a good setup and a, a, a something fun for people to listen to. And and I had like a voice recording that had um I had printed out so a dictaphone sort of voice recording and there was a part in it, where I'd apparently said, "This is I'm having really fun in this show. Thanks for coming," and I was like, "Ah, oh, so many memories. It's going to be <laughs> hopefully, you know, Cindy comes to the good, and we have a really fun time in Cindy." And for those for those uh, playing along at home, what what give us a summation, the cut and the thrust of the Wine Science Show? Uh, What's the blurb? Technically, this is the Wine Science Show. This is technically the second vintage, but I've. I ha- I didn't even do the first one in Sydney, so <laughs> I thought if I go to Sydney and do the second one and call it the second one, it would throw people off. So I'm branding it as the Wine Science Show, um, but if you've read the book, the Wine Science Show, it's a completely different show to that one in Sydney. <laughs> um, I hope that makes sense. This is going to be about um, uh, well, as a topic of. Uh, something we're going to talk about soon. It's got some myths and lies and falsehoods and identity theft and uh, history and pollination and science and neuroscience and memory loss and the greatest red wine ever made. That's what it's all about. Um, and yeah, thanks thanks that- for asking, Campbell. It's, it's about yeah. the history and the Wines and memory loss. Did I mention memory loss? No. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. that's, one, that's one of the jokes I, I, I read in there and I was like, I said that joke every night and people laughed every night with a moan. And I was like, I'm never taking that out. Every show is going to have me pretending I haven't said memory loss at least twice. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll wait with bated breath and we'll hear when those dates are announced but well done mate it takes a lot to put yourself out there that is very admirable luke morris and uh we look forward to hearing you uh on tour once again back out there thank you putting yourself on stage would you like to be smarter and do good in the world luke morris here i sold out shows at the melbourne international comedy festival with the wine science show and now that show is in book form It's only $15 and 100% of profits go to charity. So donate and learn and laugh with the Wine Science Show book. Go to lukemorrisha.com.au or follow the link in the Luke's Talk Wine Instagram bio. Today, first up, I want to talk about wine and its 
contribution to history, whether current release or, or you know, age old, right back, whether it's Greek mythology or, you know, Brad Pitt, wine is interwoven with history. Do you, do you have a couple of moments that kind of resonate to you? Like I, I always love the moment when I'm talking, when I'm teaching people about Pinot Noir and people say, oh, you know, it's, it's hard to get a $15 bottle of Pinot Noir. And I slam my hand down on the table and I say, listen, Pinot Noir is difficult to grow. It comes from the most complicated place on planet Earth. And it's so ancient, Napoleon used to march his troop past the vineyard of Gervais Champetain. He would stop them each time they were going into battle, whether there was four or 4,000 of them, and he would make them salute the vineyard of Gervais Champetain because to them that was the <laughs> most historical place that they were defending. And that is a beautiful piece of history, and that is fact, actually. But there are many portions of his history and how it's intertwined with wine what about you luke morris um i know you cover some in the wine science show but what, what yes. are some other facts that um just spring to mind and how wine's been woven into history it's funny you should mention the thing about napoleon because i i think i'd heard of it but i ne- I've, I completely forgot it and yes there's something in the wine science show about the french uh taking which is a true story taking more interest in wine than war and uh, having their priorities in the right order, I should say. Um, but what's one of the things? Well, the first thing that jumped to mind was the history of why we say cheers and clink glasses. Oh, yeah. This is and a good one. That's to do with poison, basically. And uh, everyone used to fill up their cups with wine because yes. wine and beer, but wine was, was very, very common. Um because it was safer to drink something that had been fermented than plain water. Plain water would, is dangerous for you. Um, so even today, no, not today, not in Adelaide. Adelaide's water is fine. Um, uh, no, but back hist- historically, uh, you, you drink wine and beer. So there'd be wine in, in, in the cup and you cheese it and you cheese, you, you, you bump glasses hard enough so that the contents would spill over into each, I'm saying glass, but they, they would be mugs, um, mugs and... and, and uh, tankards. Uh, t- tankards, thank you very much. And so. there's um, there's some great history to that as well. Oh, on, but anyway, the cheers part, you want them to splash over into each other's glass and you want to watch each other in the eyes to do it for making sure that any sort of poison that might be in one glass is mixed into the other so that you're an honest uh, host cheering and and your guest is going to be as safe as you are in your house and that's the history of why we do that why we we cheers and make eye contact and and bump glasses and it is a ritual which happens the world over whether you're plowing through pints in you know, on the on the River Thames in in London, or whether you're sucking back rosé in, in Provence, it, it's you, you do you cheers, you know, and it's whatever it is in its respective language. But you you do you greet somebody with a cheers, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I finished most of my emails with cheers, 
ever since yeah. someone told me uh, kind regards was very passive aggressive, I was like, I, I mean that sincerely. And what's what's wrong with kind regards? I was like, ah, oh, it's just really rude. I was like, is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll change that then. <laughs> Well, that that's a whole other world of yeah, popular yeah, yeah, culture yeah. and how to sign off an email. Yep. Because uh, I used to sign off an email. We've gone off on a tangent here, folks. If you didn't really realize, I used to sign off talk emails. Yeah. <laughs> talk email signatures. I used to sign off an email with TKS, as in the shortened version of, of, of thanks. Until someone told me that was just lazy, <laughs> and I was like, "Is it?" Yeah. Um. <laughs> and then, then I started. So then I wrote the elongated version. Thanks. And somebody said, "Well, that's not really correct." It might have even been you, Luke uh, Morris, because you're a, you're a wordsmith. Uh, he said, "It wasn't even. It wasn't. You weren't. Thanks to who? Thanks to you. Thanks to me. It was, I, I wasn't identifying who I was thanking." And I was like, "No, oh, this is all too complex." I um, I, I still get annoyed when people write uh, Tina at the end of uh, things they write to me. <laughs> It's like who your name's not Tina. Who's Tina? And then someone told me that it was uh, thanks in what is it? Thanks in anticipation or something like that. Thanks in advance. Anyway, back 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 on topic. Uh, Don Perignon. uh, This is in the Wine Science Show book. Um, It's going to be on the stage version in um, Sydney. But the book, uh, Don Perignon, never said come quickly. I'm Drinking the stars. Tasting stars. Yeah. Tasting the stars. Never said that. No, that, that was a marketing department. Yep. 100% marketing And, and on, on that, you know, people often credit Don Perignon, um, whose name oh. was Pierre, by the way, Pierre Perignon. Um, That's all right. Spo- spoiler alert. Um, they often credit him with creating champagne, but in fact it wasn't. It was um, the lady, Madame, Madame Clicquot. Uh, yeah, it's, it's also arguable with that because it's a shame. The, the people who discovered it is, is arguably the English because of the shipment of champagne across to England and it was yes. the extra length of time in that um, movement oh, because of the, movement. Yeah, yeah, um, the transport and because of... Uh, the uh, champagne being in a, a slightly cool region, they never got the fermentation 100% f- um, processed, and then they'll bottle things off and send it, send it off with dormant yeast because of temperature in the bottle. And by the time it got to England, it would warm up, you know, ironically, mm-hmm. and start fermenting again, and you'd, you'd get uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, and you get the, 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 under pressure, you get, um, sparkling and that was something that one of the things that john perion tried to figure out and stop <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah to, to, it's it's arguable who was the first person to control the process and um christopher merritt in england is is uh the first to write a scientific paper on on the process because england really loved the bubbles i thought it was a unique cool thing where champagne identified it as a fault and tried to figure out how to stop it yeah, it is, and that is intrinsic wine history. Um, and it's something which again is intrinsic to wine history is Brad Pitt and his Merval Rose. That really, back in 2012 or 11, when they bought that uh estate, 
for you know almost 30 million if you don't mind umpire there wasn't they were really rose just put it back they put rose back and it changed the face of provincial roses forevermore one it was uh, a hang, very hang, expensive hang. purchase hang on are you, two, are, you, are, are you telling me that don per not not uh, that brad pitt put rose back on the map i am i'm when telling did it you go that. off the map I didn't know it had any, like, disappeared. Well, it it yeah. had a kind of, um, what would you say, in the last decade, don't you think people have got a much wider or broader appreciation of rosé? Oh, I, to be honest with you, I probably don't have my finger on, on the pulse over the stretch of the decade. I'm sorry I didn't interrupt you, but I was just in so much shock that we have Brad Pitt to blame for the rise of Provence. Not to blame, to thank, I guess. I don't want to thank Brad Pitt for anything, really. I'm blaming him. No, I like I like Rosé. Oh, I've always liked Rosé. I, I, I like Rosé too, but I didn't know now was so, though, well, since he's, uh, he and his then wife has started to champion it, it's it's back and we're getting dry Rosé. The, the whole, the world's moved away from those sickly sweet and they're now getting terroir-focused, driven, um, dry rosés. Oh. Um, and it, I think it would help, you know, when you've got the Perrin family involved of Shadow Bocastel making the wine for you. That would kind of would help. Um, but those wines, that that is, again, woven into the history. And now, rosé, you can't... I don't reckon you could buy a sweet rosé anymore. Do you, oh, you can still buy Matusse, Matusse rosé. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, these rosés are dry styles. Um, and I, I think that is intrinsic into wine history, along with Dom Perignon, along with Napoleon. Um, you know, there's a lot of great um, points where history intersects the wine. Ooh, you know, yeah, well, you spoke... can talk about um, the Guttenheim printing press being a um one of the influences to wine production oh actually oh oh he's well because of labeling here's a really yes. interesting thing wine history um yes uh i can't remember which i think it was king james the fourth i want to say king james the fourth who was a bit of a um uh, an environmentalist back in the day. I don't know if you've noticed, but all the things that we sort of worry about and stress about today, people have been worrying about and stressing about for hundreds of years, and you know they still exist as a problem. So King King James was was quite worried about um, uh, the cutting down of forests. Yeah, um, and he he made it illegal to to cut down so many forests because he wanted um he wanted to keep the environment as as beautiful and natural for people in the future and hunting there were selfish reasons but anyway in doing that he forced people in england to start burning coal instead of wood when they were forging and making things and coal burns higher and therefore higher uh, temperatures mean stronger glassware. It also means an, inc- an improvement in the Industrial Revolution uh, sort of later on, but in, in, in um, the production in, in history, that was one of the things that it forced people to start using coal. Coal produced um, 
uh, stronger glassware, stronger glassware allowed for people to do things like um, bottling of wines that could be bottled under pressure and gives us a cycle back to champagne. Well, there you go. Yeah. So at many points, our wine industry intersects with history. I love it. I love it. I love yeah. that about our industry. You know, it's, um, you know, whether it's Dionysus in Greek mythology or whether it's Brad Pitt, you know, it's just amazing. And I think where it intersects is is amazing. Moving forward. Okay. I've got a, I've got a listener question. Renmark is in South Australia. Uh, right in peoples, uh, if you can tell us a bit more about Renmark. But what I can tell you is we do have a listenership in Renmark. And Rebecca writes, how do I taste a bottle of wine for the table? Luke Morris, we'll start with you. Well, do you know when you said that we could have different interpretations of this question, I think yep. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I, my interpretation might be different to yours. I listen to that and I think, okay, you're tasting it for the table. Therefore, you've taken, you've tasted it somewhere at a restaurant. Therefore, you've most likely, therefore, you've been poured. You've said, we'll have the 82 Shadow Nerf to Pup and the waiters pulled the cork and, and given you a little, little tasting in the glass and you're tasting it on behalf of the table to check if there's any faults to it before the, the waiter uh, serves it out to the table. And so in that case, you're primarily looking for cork taint. And so if you smell something really off and horrible about it, you can get the waiter's opinion. And I've done this and said, I'm not 100% sure, but you might know the wine more than me. Does this, is this reflective of what you believe that, that wine should be like? Or if you smell it and, and, and taste it and think, yeah, that tastes perfectly fine, you just rave it on to be served to everyone. If it's under screw cap and you complain, you're going to look like a bit of a silly billy. Um, not always. You can get you can get cork taint through uh, the barrel and you can live in other parts of winemaking, but it's very unlikely. It's most likely if it's under screw cap, the wine is should be should be solid. Uh, there shouldn't be a lot of bottle, bottle variation or any deterioration. Um, so yeah, all you really have to do if you're tasting a wine for the table is smell it. If it smells okay, taste it. If it tastes okay, then it's okay. If it if you're familiar enough with cork taint or other wine faults to identify that, raise that with the the waiter, they might either be able to confirm or uh, give you some um, advice. Because I've seen this happen where uh, somebody said, this bottle of Co-OT is off. And it wasn't. It was just Co-OT. That's, that's how Co-OT is, is like. And they weren't, the customer wasn't really aware of what they were ordering. <laughs> so they... Yeah, which happens. <laughs> Which happens, but yeah, that's basically it. You and yeah, you, you should just hopefully, hopefully, that explains why people do it, and that explains all your job is is to just double check that the wine's solid. That's it. Yeah, it, exactly right. And Rebecca, I think if you've been appointed, you know, the taster of the wine, you, you've obviously ordered the wine, and so what what Maurice says there, and you know, if you don't have an idea, 
lean on the waiter or the sommelier who probably does. Um, but also, you know, contrary to popular belief, you're not tasting the wine to see whether you like it or not. You're tasting the wine to see whether it's faulty. The wine, if it is faulty, uh, you can send it back to the restaurant uh, or wine bar, wherever you might be at the time, can actually get it back from a supplier. Uh, so don't feel um, second rate by sending it back or asking a second opinion. As the diner, you're well within your rights. Um, and simply, how do you taste it? Very simply, the triple S theory, you give it a swirl, you give it a sniff and you give it a slurp. Um, and at that point, you can <laughs> ascertain whether it is corked or off, as Luke Morris said, you know, like if it's got that musty smell or if it's got a smell on it that it, it, conversely, if it smells like nothing at all and it's a bit dead, um, you know, it may not be in the best condition. Uh, so just take that, you know, 25, 30 seconds and just ha have a quick assessment of the wine. And then you just wave it on uh, and the wine waiter or sommelier will pour the rest of the table and then they'll pour you last. So you have a little bit of a moment to think about it um, and then ascertain whether is it faulty, is it not? Good question, though. Yeah. And if people want to send us a question, how, how do they do that, Luke Morris? Uh, well, very shortly, they'll be able to ask it to me in person at Sydney Fringe. Um or you can email uh, lukestalkwine at gmail.com and we will we'll, we'll answer the question. <laughs> it's as simple as that. We will answer the question live on air in our fortnightly podcast, Luke's Talk Wine. You can also DM us on Instagram with our handle, Luke's Talk Wine, uh, and we will catch up to you there if you didn't want to do the long form emailing bit. Hmm. Do you use emojis, Luke Morris, when you send texts? No, I do not use emojis, Luke. <laughs> I, yes. I. Why I, not? Why just, you know a lot of people do use them. Why do you not use them? I. I Is it? Yeah, I just guess I like to write to people what I yes. have to say and leave it at that. I don't. I don't. I actually don't know what a lot of the emojis mean. Do you? What does mm. upside down smiley face mean, Campbell? I've seen that a couple of times lately. I don't know what that is. No, it's a whole other language that <laughs> I, I'm not down with. Um, I must admit. <laughs> That's so... there you go. That's why I don't use emojis. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> But uh, I guess it's like, you know, I've got a very minimal understanding of the English language and how I use it, but I don't tend to uh, write in slang or anything like that because, yeah, in case you, you get it wrong. But, you know, I, I still use emojis and um, the emojis that I like to use, I know what they mean. But, uh, yeah. so oh, well, Look, I, I know guess... they're popular. I'm not denying anyone should use them. Kids today, all over them. Go for it. You're, you're welcome to. Older people. I sent an email to a, to a customer who, and he said something about emojis and I replied saying, I don't know what they are. I don't know how to help you with that. And, you know, he's, he's a good 10 years older than me and he's just replied with a whole series of them. I don't know if he just palmed a keyboard or if what he wrote back meant something. But anyone, you're welcome to use them. But I am surprised that there's not a white wine emoji. Did well, that have anything to do with the fact that 
you know, your background is white and it might be just hard to see? Well, mo most wine enthusiasts, who've, they've used the wine emoji at some stage, right? Many will have been... Uh, many will have been frustrated as I have been or surprised to discover that there's no choice of a white wine rosé. It's only red and it's infuriating. I can put whiskey in there. I can put a martini in there, but I can't put a white wine emoji. In you want a whiskey? Hang on. I'm just Googling what the, okay. So it looks like a glass with, a, with some red wine in it. Okay. Yes. Yes. So a red yeah. wine emoji exists. I'm here to say that we need a white wine emoji. And can you believe that there was a... There, so I went down a rabbit hole with this. I thought, what what is this? It was Sunday afternoon. I must mm. admit, I was socially excited. I had had a couple of glasses of wine, um, responsibly, of course. But then I was thinking, what is... There must be somebody fighting for the white wine emoji. And there is, in fact. There is. There was a campaign in uh, back in... 20, 2021 by the New Zealand Wine Growers Association. They launched their application uh, on World Emoji Day, which fell on deaf ears and was rejected. Their application was rejected without giving wow. a reason. Um, they they wrote to the Unicode Technical Committee, so UTC, the body that gives the thumbs up to all proposed emojis. They didn't give a reason why not. But I'm bringing it back. There's going to be another attempt made in 2024 <laughs> when the two-year grace period, would you believe it, there's a grace period for emojis, uh, oh, when the two-year grace period why ends. Is it, why, is it so, why is the bureaucracy? What, 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 what I don't can know. emojis do? Give the world a white wine emoji. Come on. What uh, emojis I'm on it anyway. I assume there's a whole lot of, because the, you know you know what the eggplant means. I assume there's a well, whole yeah, lot of emo emoji <laughs> think characters that people um, want to create and are being prevented from because of uh, censorship laws. And there's reasons for censorship. I can, I can, I can understand why we we need censorship in certain areas. Um, yes. Uh, but if you've already got a red wine emoji, I don't see what the difficulty and problem is of creating a white wine one. Oh, it's just a slightly, you're singing it's, from the same hymn book. It's just exactly the same thing, but slightly different coloured. Yeah, I, I've got no idea. Like if I send you a cycling emoji, if I push on that cycling emoji, I can have me cycling in all different colour helmets. Why can't I push on the red wine emoji and have it rosé, have it white wine? I can't, I can't see the problem. We want white wine emoji. We want, when do we want it now? Like we need it. What I'm going to do, listeners, is I'm going to put in the link to the New Zealand Wine Online message board, and you can also write your message of support because next year there's going to be another attempt to secure the white wine emoji. Oh, it's about bloody time too. I tell you, the number of times that we've been trying to <laughs> converse and not been able to get on the same page about the type of wine we want to be drinking Bring emojis alone. You, we you need jest. this, Cam. I'm glad you brought this problem up to everyone's attention. We do. We need it, and I, I'm glad to hear you're on board, Luke Morris. We need it. We want it. We want it now. The white wine emoji people. I'm going to put it in the notes uh, of this episode, and everybody can get on board.
please, yes, please, please, for Campbell's sake, <laughs> and the future of this podcast, so that we never have to go down emoji talk again. <laughs> <laughs> If we had merch <laughs> on uh, Luke Talks Riesling and Luke's Talk Wine, if we weren't selling our homemade Riesling, we would be selling white wine emoji T-shirts. I will give you the tip. Oh, man. Imagine that if we, if we had T-shirts that were like said, I love Riesling and then an emoji of a red wine glass on it. <laughs> that would be perfect. Um, that would be a conversation starter at least. They were like, uh, why have you got a red wine glass on your T-shirt? And they were like, well, look at the back of my T-shirt. There's a HTML and <laughs> that you can fill out on your phone to, to link to New, New Zealand's attempt to get white wine emojis happening. And that would be a great marketing spreader, I'm sure. Perfect. You're on the same wavelength. I love it. I, I see no problem with this idea. We'll get on to uh, Redbubble and um, get merch created ASAP. Yeah, we're on it. Um, what have you been drinking, Luke Morris? Um, last night I had a uh, Matolo uh, Seventh Son GMS with the S standing for Sanguentino. And uh, actually, I think it's a GSS, Grenache Shiraz Sanguentino. Anyway, 2017 um, Matolo, full bodied meaty wine. Had it with some fish. Who cares? I was just having a, I, I was just relaxing at the end of the day, uh, hoping Australia would win the cricket. That's all I was doing. And um, hey, good one. Wow. Nothing, no, nothing, nothing, blowing your socks off. But that, yeah. that's what I had. Um, very solid. Re- recommend it. Yeah. How about you, Campbell? Uh, I. I think drinking a little bit all over the shop. I got off the Beechworth train because I. As a, as uh, in the last episode, I was talking to you about uh, Chris Catlow and Sentio's wines, and I was drinking his Gamay. Yeah, I got off that. What? what When's that I... dinner? Have you had that dinner? No, that dinner is on. Um, thank you for asking. The dinner is coming up. It's part of our Scopri Inspiration series. There is still some tickets. There's a few tickets left. That's on Thursday, the sixth of July. So next next Thursday, so about ten days time from today Ooh. in Melbourne. It's one of uh, it's at one of the Melbourne's dining institution at Scopri. So it will have happened by the time we do the next episode. So this is your last reminder, audience. That's it. Get involved. We're actually looking. Because Chris worked at Benjamin LaRue in Burgundy and he worked at Brezzo in Barolo, we're going to look at some of those wines and compare them to him, uh, his wines, and talk to Chris about his inspiration. Um, It'll be a fantastic night. There will be about 10 wines and four courses. It'll be fantastic. Um, no, but I got off the Catlow train briefly. What are they? Oh, I was drinking the Pooley Pinot. That was last night, actually. I um, Tazzy Pooley? It is, yeah. yeah. Anna Pooley and Justin Bubb. They make some stonking wines. I was actually, I was a bit lazy, actually. I just, I opened up the wine fridge and literally it was the first thing there. I wasn't very meticulous about it, searching through the cellar for what was drinking now. And I just opened it up and that <laughs> fell out. And I was like, yeah, you beauty, I feel like Pino. And it was awesome. It was black and brooding. And actually, I wrote a tasting note on, on um, my socials uh, 
for Vinified, actually, if you have a look at Vinified underscore wine underscore services, my tasting notes there, like, you know, for about 40, mid, mid 40s, it is just one of the best value Tassie Pinots going around. It's juicy. It's brooding. You could put it in the cellar for five years, but this is their 21, their current vintage, and it was just real fruit flat out. I loved it. Drank the whole bottle to myself. Didn't share a drop. <laughs> responsibly of course uh and i was a pig in mud it was um absolutely sensational but yeah just i often go back to pinot like uh it's it's the considerable drink but yeah i didn't consider it i just loved it every every minute it's the beguiling was, oh great you know, it was all about that but i just 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 inhaled it, it was um yeah it was just it had it, it had everything I wanted, you know. It was cold and wintry outside, and this was just brooding and dark, and had all that kind of you know cherry thing going on, and some really polished wine making. Since we're in this, we're, I'm, I'm guilty. Yeah. Since we're in this uh, real arc, can I ask mm. your opinion on the topic of mm. uh, Beaujolais is the poor man's Burgundy? View on that kind of sentence. Oh, Beaujolais is the poor man's burgundy. Well, uh, the Beaujolais producers, they, well, they were excommunicated from burgundy, which is how they, yeah. um, how we ended up with pasto grains when they blend the two together. Is it the poor man's burgundy? Often Gamay is much brighter. And is it the poor man's burgundy? I don't know if I would classify it as the poor man's burgundy. Um, so no, I don't agree with that statement. If we were agreeing or disagreeing, I would disagree because I think it just has too high a fruit and it is, if I ever taste them, I taste them separately. Like I taste Gamay separately to Pinot, although they're distantly related. Um, I would see them separate. What about you? Do you, do you see them separate? Oh yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're separate, but Burgundy going up and up and up in price, and Beaujolais hadn't hasn't had the same romance to it, so it just doesn't have the same uh, value cash. But that has meant that a lot of people now are starting to look, and you know, because their neighbours looking at it mm -hmm. at, at the grape next door, and starting to go, hang on a second, this is actually really good value for money. Oh yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And and with that, a, lo a lot of double takes thinking, we've, we've sort of ignored this Beaujolais and potentially because of Beaujolais Nouveau and this image of what Beaujolais is, it's actually more complex, more, more varied, very interesting wine. And it's still, it's, I, I think it's still cheaper than top-notch burgundy but it's well it is definitely still cheaper than top-notch burgundy but i don't know it's a, it's a, it, I, you could almost rephrase it as the is is almost a a wise person's bur burgundy to to it to a degree they're still different oh i, th I think very, you could too very and yeah. they're more and more serious now like there's so there's, there's 10 crews of beaujolais and they are all very different although you know they're you know, they, uh, what do you call it? They're, they're, they're handled the same, unlike the crews of Burgundy and stuff, they're handled very differently. But for the most part in Beaujolais, like they're planted north to south 
you know, the, the yields are a little bit tighter. So I think there's better value to be had in Beaujolais and particularly the crew Beaujolais. As you say, not we're not talking about Beaujolais Nouveau, the fresh pumped stuff. No, we're talking yeah, about yeah. the more serious wines, whether it yes. be of Fleury or Morgon or Bruy or um, what's the other popular one? Moulin et Vaux. Um, so, so these ones, um, these guys, yeah, I guess Paul Men's Burgundy, they're definitely popping up. Like on a, with this now, where you used to see a list of all these wines under Burgundy, you might see those same uh, lists come out under Beaujolais now. They'll list the different crews and stuff. So maybe it's headed that way. Um, just maybe, Luke Morris. Long answer to a short question, but just maybe. I don't know if I've sat on the fence there, but maybe I have. No, I think he came out on uh, rejecting the the idea of Beaujolais yeah, be, I, I, being n- not in the same class as Burgundy. I think they're different, but they're also yeah. got yeah. I I think there's a lot of smart money spent in in Beaujolais and a lot of more dollars than cents spent in Burgundy at the moment. Yeah, I, I think. Um... It has to be considered different for it to be able to grow and people consider it. It's like Nebbiolo and Barolo, you know, like I think people have to, for a lot of time, they were compared as, you know, similar, but I think that you have to compare, you have to compare Burgundy to Burgundy. You can't start mm. comparing it to Beaujolais or Barolo, you know, like yeah, fair. the comparative, you've got to be oranges and oranges, not oranges and kennels. Like, um, you know, like for like is what I'm trying to get at. Not fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, good good stuff. Like everything in life, good things have to come to an end, and that brings us to the end of season four, episode five. Um, amazing chatting to you again, Luke Morris. I will be in touch sooner rather than later. But um, thank you very much. And in the words of Tony (laughs) Barber, we will say, keep smiling and bye for now. Smooth. (laughs) It can be really hard to justify opening a bottle of wine from the cellar on a Tuesday night when all you want is one glass. And that's why we've started Unbottled Wines. We're delivering seasonally curated, ultra-premium wines from acclaimed Australian winemakers. These are wines that have never before seen the inside of a box and may never again. Why a box? Because the box keeps wine fresh for up to 40 days after it's opened, unlike the bottle, which goes off after three or four. So if you would like to be able to drink exceptional wine one glass at a time, check out Unbottled Wines. Use the code VINIFIED at checkout and save 10%.